Here's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. We're going to study the book of Habakkuk. I didn't get any amens or excited or... Somebody tell me where Habakkuk is. It's in the Old Testament. There we go. That's good. It's in the Minor Prophets. Okay. After Nahum, right? Which doesn't give you a whole lot more information than you have. It's after Nahum, which is after Micah. All right. Before Zephaniah, right? In fact, most people think Nahum, uh, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah are contemporaries. They were around the same time. And we're going to look at this book over the next three weeks. And here's the reason. I want to tell you the reason for the friend, and then we're going to have a little history lesson, and then we're going to study the first chapter. Okay? Um, I'll tell you a couple of reasons. One is, as I was looking through, we're talking about starting this in September, going through um, with Explore the Bible. And so we needed something that was two or three weeks short. Well, in Scripture, when you want to look at something two or three weeks short, you go to the Minor Prophets, generally. All right? And so just began to pray about that, look at some of that, see where God might be kind of leading us. Um, another reason is, I, I, I'm not going to ask you whether you did, but I really enjoyed digging into the book of Haggai that we did on Sunday mornings over the last few weeks, the Reversing Ichabod series, where we dug into a book that I wasn't as familiar with as um, Matthew and Luke and John, Mark, I'm not, you know, or... Ephesians or Colossians or even Jonah or Galatians. You know, it was, it was a different book. Uh, in fact, I was at the Union. Uh, I don't know if y'all know this, but Union dedicated a new facility in Hendersonville. They now have a campus in Hendersonville that they're going to do some postgraduate work, some master's level work, and some uh, doctoral stuff in education. Um, and I was out there at the dedication uh, ceremony because I just go to anything Union does, whether they ask me to or not. Uh, and doctor, they were there, and one of the vice presidents asked me, what have you been preaching on? I said, well, I just did a series on Haggai. And he said, now that is something I do not hear very often. I just finished a series on Haggai. And so I enjoyed that, and so I thought, let's see if we can delve into another of the minor prophets. It's one of those books that just kind of gets lost in the shuffle sometimes. Now, there are two or three verses you'll recognize when we get to them pretty regularly. I mean, you'll say, wow, I didn't know that was from Habakkuk. Um, there's a um, there's a verse in chapter two that you would recognize, I think, pretty readily. There's the end of chapter three has a couple of verses that most of you have heard of or know. And so there's some verses in here that are good, but it's also a book that teaches us a lot in a lot of different areas. It's a book that, that talks to us about questions that are really in the heart of man. In fact, one of the interesting things I read about Habakkuk today, it said that Habakkuk is a book where God does not speak to the prophet, but the prophet speaks to God. Now, usually in prophetic books, what happens? God says, speak, and it goes. Habakkuk starts with a description of who he is, and then the first thing you have is the prophet questioning God. And so it's a reversal of it. And what he does is he asks God some of the same questions that all of us at some time or another want to ask God. How long? Why? Why are you not? Why are you? And so I love that it's that pastoral kind of response, that, that understanding of what goes on in our soul. Here's what one um, guy, a guy named Gowan in a book about Habakkuk has said. Most people, even in the Bible, who have longed, most people, even in the Bible, 
who have longed for the privilege of arguing with God, of questioning the way he does things, of seeking God's explanation of his ways, have not been given that opportunity. What Habakkuk has recorded here is something rather extraordinary. A dialogue in which he twice complains to God about the world's injustice, and twice God answers him. The remarkable thing may not be that Habakkuk asked the questions. The remarkable thing is we have recorded God's answer to the questions. So there's this idea that, that Habakkuk is asking questions that we all may deal with at some time. There's also this theological understanding. Um, one, of the, uh, one of the phrases that you may recognize from this book comes from Habakkuk 2.4, which we're not going to get there tonight. We'll get there next week. But it says, the just shall live by faith. Now, what's interesting is, in the Reformation that happened in the Middle Ages, which is kind of an important thing, because without the Reformation like it happened, there wouldn't be Baptist churches. So for us in a Baptist church, it's kind of an important moment in history. One of the verses that was used most readily in that came from Habakkuk. Martin Luther, y'all know Martin Luther, right? Not Martin Luther King Jr., but Martin Luther, the really old guy, right? 95 theses nailed on the door. One of the verses in Scripture that stirred in him this idea that it is by faith we are saved and faith alone that he used all the time was that the just shall live by faith. Luther became a rallying point for that. Another reason is this book touches on a subject that we'll talk a little bit more about in a few minutes. The subject of why evil exists. If God is all-powerful and God is all-good, then why is there evil? So Habakkuk has this apologetic use in the sense that we can use some of the things that God answers to say to people, this is who God is. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody's going to accept the answer, but the answers to those kind of questions are there. But perhaps the most striking aspect of this book is that we see God in the center of history. And that in the midst of whatever struggle we might be going through, that in the center of it all ought to be hearts that are worshiping Him. We're going to read in the first part of Habakkuk, it's not a real cheery first couple of chapters. I mean, in fact, I'm going to you know, give a little bit away about the book. God's going to respond to the questions by saying, guess what, Habakkuk? I am answering, and I'm going to send an army to destroy you. That's not the answer we typically think a prophet wants to hear, right? Congratulations, I'm going to do something about it. Here comes an army to destroy you. And Habakkuk will say things like, I'm just going to stand here and wait. I'm just going to live in this moment. And then you get to chapter 3, though, and you get to the end of chapter 3. If you've got your Bibles open there, just look at the end of chapter 3. Because there's this amazing thing that happens at the end of chapter 3. God answers all this stuff in the first couple of chapters. And Habakkuk writes this poem. And in verse 16 of chapter 3, it says, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Saying, in other words, this nation is taking us over, but I know God's going to win in the end. And then verse 17, you probably have heard this. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, I will complain all the day long. 
Is that what it says? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. Even in the worst possible situation, Habakkuk finds a heart that praises the Lord. An amazing message. There's a little bit of Jeremiah in there. Here's the thing about Habakkuk. I think at times he's a little more hopeful than Jeremiah. I mean, Jeremiah, those of you that read through the Bible with us uh, uh, two years ago, know that he is, Jeremiah is not real happy at all. He's called the weeping prophet all the time. And so if Habakkuk's a little more open to that. Here, here's an interesting, um, it's what somebody's written, a guy named Raymond Calkins. There is no Old Testament book that is able to do more for the burdened souls of men or to raise them to higher levels of hope and confidence than the brief prophecy of Habakkuk. Hardly a book in the Bible is constructed on such simple and majestic lines. These three chapters stand like three columns, side by side, each complete in itself, unparalleled in their power and appeal. Search the Bible through and you will find nothing so matchless and concentrated power as these three chapters. Of the outward circumstances of the prophet's life, we know nothing. But here was a man with a soul sensitive to evil, yet firm in his faith in an omnipotent God. And this faith, he has uttered with a force, an eloquence, a literary power, which has caused his words to become a permanent part of the literature of the soul. So that's why we're studying Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 1, let's look at it. We're going to just cover part of the first chapter today. And I always say things like, I may let you out early, and then I never do. So I won't even say that tonight, but we may. Verse 1, the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. All right, a couple of things there. What do we know about Habakkuk? Anybody know anything about Habakkuk other than there's a book here? That's an assumption, because we really don't know what his name means. Here's what we know about Habakkuk. Absolutely nothing. All right? Now, there are people that think they know something. In fact, you know how I read commentaries and they have all these theories. There were six theories about who he was. But at the end of every theory, they go, but there's no evidence to substantiate that. In fact, there is the only time in any kind of ancient literature where he is mentioned at all is a, an apocrypha a, from the apocrypha. That's a hard word to say, apocryphal. I don't think that's how you say it, but it's the apocrypha. From that book, which, you know, are the books that didn't make it into the Bible, either uh, some of them are in the Catholic Bible, but in our evangelistic Bible, evangelical Bible, it's not there. There's a book called Bell and the Dragon. Okay? Now, that doesn't sound like anything that ought to be in the Bible, but it's called Bell and the Dragon. And, and one of the uh, stories in there is that Habakkuk, this name, is a guy that was told to go to Daniel in the lion's den, and he didn't know how to get there, and so a bird picked him up for an angel, kind of unclear which it meant, dropped him in the lion's den, he told Daniel I need to say, then picked him back up and brought him back. Probably not true, all right? There is the theory out there that he is a music minister. Now, that's not what they call it. They call him a Levitical priest. But the reason for that is simply because it says at the end of Habakkuk chapter 3, for the director of music, that maybe he was one of the guys writing music, all right? We don't know anything about him. What we do know, probably, is around the time he lived. And what we know is that he lived in that time 
when Judah was getting taken over by the Babylonians. Now, here's what I want you to think for a minute. Because I want us to kind of walk through a little bit of historical um, narrative to get where we are with Habakkuk. You remember God made a promise to Abram, right? What was God's promise to Abram? You're going to flourish, and I'm going to bless you. The whole earth will be blessed by you, and I'm going to give you a family and people that are greater than you can count. And so the Old Testament is in some ways a working out of that plan in starts and stops. And so you have Abraham, and then you get to the patriarchs of the Old Testament, and you see their their jobs, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and uh, Joseph and all those guys. You end up with the Israelites in captured slavery in Egypt, and God sends a deliverer. His name is Moses. Moses goes, takes them out. Moses dies. They get over into the promised land with Joshua, and immediately upon getting into the promised land, what happens? They start doing whatever they want to do. So they bring judges. You remember that whole cycle in Judges? You have the judge rises up. They come back to God. They forget God blesses them. They forget God. God brings destruction. They get a judge. They come back to God. God blesses You know, the whole cycle. And that goes on and on until Israel says, we need a king. And the last judge is a guy named Samuel. And the first king is a guy named Saul. Right? Saul's not a very good king. In fact, he does exactly what the Lord says not to do. And God says, you're no longer my king. My king is David. And so there is now a battle rage between those two guys trying to see who's going to be king. David waits it out, becomes king of Israel, and the golden era of Israel ensues. And so you have this great time of unity and together. And David, who was morally corrupt, Right? I mean, that's not the first description you usually use of David, but the truth is he was. How do we know he's morally corrupt? What happened? Bathsheba, her husband, murdered her husband, slept with Bathsheba, murdered her husband, had a child out of wedlock, married her. So, I mean, that's the kind of guy you want to pastor in a church, right? No, he didn't, he didn't actually, yeah, it was second degree murder. It was a murder for hire. Okay. So David, but he but it says in Scripture that in spite of his failings, he was still a man after God's own heart, right? So David gets through, his son Solomon comes to the throne. Solomon does a pretty good job, but Solomon gets a little too much of everything. Alright? Too much money, too much wealth, too much buildings, too many wives, too many concubines. Gets too much. He builds up the kingdom to the point when it's over, there's going to be a little bit of a struggle over who gets it. And they give it to one son who says from advisors, you can't be like your dad. You've got to be harder than your dad. And he breaks the backs of people. And before long, this great glorious kingdom becomes two, north and south. That happens for about 200 years. In 722 B.C., the northern kingdom is destroyed by a country called Assyria. And all that is left is the southern tribe of Judah, with Jerusalem and that area. And they have kings that are good and kings that are bad. And along comes this young guy who comes in and says, God is not being honored here. A guy named Josiah, he takes over the throne. Yeah, at age eight. So just think, Eli's too old. He's nine. How would that feel? How would America feel if Eli was suddenly president of the United States? 
I know, yeah, no comments. I realized that that was coming out of my mouth. That was not a wise thing to ask. So, Josiah comes on. He reigns for a long time. But here's what happens, okay? At the time of Josiah, there are three world powers. You have Assyria, who destroyed the northern kingdom, who is on the decline. You have Babylon, who, for lack of a better comparison, is kind of like North Korea today. They're the crazy ones. They're the ones that you're scared. If they get a nuclear weapon, they're going to use it. They're just a little crazy. And then you've got Egypt, who's also waning. In fact, Egypt's farther down than Assyria or Babylon. It's really a battle between them. But Egypt decides that they're going to have one more great hurrah. They're going to reestablish themselves. And the way they're going to do it is they're going to go through Judah. Judah at that time was kind of like Rhode Island. Nobody's really scared of Rhode Island, right? They're just going to pass through. They say, we're passing through. And King Josiah says, no, you're not. And Egypt says, okay, you tell us we're not. We are. Just stop us. So this is one of the things you love about Josiah. He says, we're stopping you. And he takes his arm and he goes out to find them. And he doesn't just, like David, send the army out to war. He disguises himself as a soldier. Anybody know what happens in the battle? He gets killed. They put one of his sons on the throne who is not as good of a king as Josiah. The Egyptian goes up. They fight with Assyria. On the way back down, they decide to take captive that king and take him back to Egypt. They put another guy over that's not good at all. And in the midst of that, Babylon is continuing to rise in power. And you have a guy in Habakkuk who has been praying for the man of God to lead them back to where they need to be. And he gets a glimpse. He sees the reform starting to happen. And then the hero is killed. And incompetence and idolatry follow. There are very few things worse in life than getting a glimpse of that thing that you want to have it taken away. There's an athlete that's um, interesting to me at the Olympics because of some of the hubbub around her, but also because of her story from four years ago, an athlete named Lolo Jones. She finished fourth last night in the hurdles. And I remember watching four years ago in Beijing. She was the heavy favorite. If you don't know her story, she grew up literally homeless in Iowa, stayed in the basement of a church for a while, got a track scholarship to LSU when they discovered she could really run. She's a, a girl that the media just doesn't know how to figure out because she's funny and um, seems to have it together, and yet she talks about following the Lord. Four years ago in Beijing, she was in the lead in the 100-meter hurdles as the last hurdle approached, and she hit the hurdle fell, and then metal. Last night, she finished fourth. Now, they give medals for what places? Three. She put on Twitter last night just a phrase that says, some of you will recognize this song, some of you won't, but says, playing Desert Song by Hillsong on repeat. Desert Song is a song of lament to the Lord. Lord, how long do I have to go through this? but I'm trusting in you. And then she wrote, praying, Lord Jesus, to mend my broken heart. Well, there are a lot of media people that go, why, why do you have a broken heart? Like, the, the same people that build you up, like if you don't meddle, you're a failure. Then they ask her why she finished fourth, why you have a broken heart. It's because she got a glimpse. 
And what Habakkuk saw is a glimpse of what it would be like to have a godly king. Verse 2. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you don't save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked him in the righteous so that justice is perverted. If we could take ourselves and put us in Habakkuk's heart, in Habakkuk's mind, where you've seen idolatry reign and a man of God you have begged for has come to the throne to do something about it, only to begin to watch God answer those prayers, to begin to see the movement of God's people, to see to begin to see them move their hearts toward God, to turn their hearts towards God, be on the cusp of a revival that would have rivaled anything except early in Israel's history. Only to watch. It all unraveled before your eyes. Nothing get worse than it ever was. What's happening here is in a very real and honest way, Habakkuk says, God, what are you doing? How could you let this happen? Are you not going to do anything about this? And here's something for us to remember over the next few weeks. This violence, this oppression, this justice not going on has nothing to do here at the beginning with the Assyrians or with the Egyptians or with the Babylonians. He's crying out in these first few verses, and I want you to understand this, about his own people. He he was on the cusp of this revival, and right as it was about to happen, the king dies and his sons come in, and they start building poles back. And he says, God... Why would you ever let that happen? One of the things that I absolutely love about this book is that Habakkuk is not afraid to go directly to God with the complaints of his heart. Anybody else in Scripture that does that? David in the Psalms. Moses goes to God. Job kind of gets a little upset, right? Even Jesus in the garden says, I wish there was another way. In case we forget that that was kind of intense, it said he was sweating blood. And so you have a very real sense of like you say, why, Lord? It doesn't make sense. Here's what I want to tell you just to think about tonight. is the importance of crying out to the Lord, of being honest with him. And here are some reasons why it's important to do that. First of all, it's important to cry out to the Lord when you have things in your life because without being honest with the Lord, you cannot grow intellectually and you cannot grow internally. Worship becomes impossible when you're not honest with the Lord. First of all, I want you to think about how ridiculous the idea is that you can hide anything from God. Right? Saying, well, of course I'm honest with the Lord. I just don't tell Him everything. I think he kind of knows, right? It's kind of like, you know, my kids think sometimes that if they just answer the questions I ask specifically, that I don't know everything else that's kind of going on. And so when we deny our honesty with the Lord, when we're holding back this why or how long or what are you thinking kind of question, it prevents worship in our own hearts. I had a, I read a story this week of a pastor who talked about one of the reasons that it's important to bring your questions directly to God and not to other people. Sometimes we do that, too. We complain about things in our lives to other people before we complain about them to the Lord. 
They said the importance of bringing it to the Lord is that you realize sometimes the smallness of your complaint when you see the bigness of God. This pastor told a story about being invited. He said, I got a call one day asking me if I would like to go and speak at a conference full paid in Hawaii. And he said, it took me about two seconds of prayer to realize, yes. He said, I didn't even give the standard. I'll pray about it. I just said, yes. So I got on a, so we got on a plane. They were paying for me and my wife to go to Oahu, stay on the beach. And I spoke two times over a three-day period. He said, we got there. We settled in. And we heard that there was this big surf competition going on. And so... We found out where it was, and we went out to the surfing area, and he said, I remember sitting on the edge of the ocean and seeing the biggest waves I had ever seen. And he said it was almost as if with every wave, God was saying, do you really want to challenge who I am? He said, at that particular moment, I was going through a time in my life when there were some questions about things going on, and I thought I knew some things more than God knew them. And the waves just reminded me of His power. When we fail to go to the Lord, we fail to get to see who He is. And as a result, it forces us to pretend. It forces us to act like everything's okay when it's really not. Now, most of us have grown up in a very similar background church. Just... um, I would say most of us in this room. How many of you grew up Baptist? All right? That's most of us, right? And most of us grew up in churches where it was pretty easy to blend in on Sunday mornings because you knew how to blend in. And my, my, I've talked about my grandfather and grandmother's church, Southside Baptist Church. I, I, I could go, I could probably go to Southside Baptist Church today and blend right in with the same songs they sang. And not, not that that's bad, you just know how to play the role. People could come to our church and after four or five weeks, whether they were early servers or the second service, they could blend in pretty easily to who we are and act, know how to act like Baptists act. You sing the songs, you sit down, you pay attention, you laugh a little bit when everybody else around you kind of chuckles. You don't say amen because nobody says amen. There we go. That's all right. Figure out what it means, whether you bring, if, you're, if your last name starts with a Q, um, you're probably bringing salad to the potluck. So you can figure it out pretty easily. But the problem is there are so many of us that have real questions or doubts or concerns in our lives that we never settle with the Lord, that we end up playing those games without ever getting real with what's going on. And so church becomes much more about the things that we're doing or the way things have been or the way things should be instead of encountering the Lord in a very real way. Habakkuk says, I'm not having that. I'm going to be open and honest about what's going on. Now here's what the Lord says. Verse 5. God answers the complaint. I love this. It says, look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe. I was at a youth camp a few years ago, and that was on the back of the T-shirts. You know how youth camps have T-shirts, you know? Uh, and on the back was this verse. Watch and see, I'm about to do amazing things. It didn't have the rest of the chapter. 
Because what's God about to do? Destroy them. It's not. Look what I'm about to do. It's an amazing thing. It is so good. It is so wonderful. In fact, I was watching a preacher on TV the other day that told us if you send him $100, you know that kind of preacher? He said, you just watch. God's going to do amazing things. That's what it says in his word. It says right here. That's not what it says, is it? I'm going to do things that you would not believe, even if you were told. Verse 6, I am raising up the Babylonians, the ruthless and impetuous people who will sweep across the whole earth to squeeze dwelling places not on their own. They are, a, in case we didn't realize how bad they were, they're fear and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves. They promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at darts. Their cavalry gallops headlong. The horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture, swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Good, good group of people here, right? Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own strength is their God. Here's what I love about that whole few verses there. See, Habakkuk complained that God was indifferent and inactive. God says, I'm neither. In fact, he says, I'm working on it. I'm doing something about it. See, I think this is exactly what Habakkuk wanted to hear. Now, I don't think, and hear me, because when we hear God, when are you going to do something about it? We think about all the evil people. When are you going to do something to make things good again? But what Habakkuk was crying for was, God, you said that when your people abandoned you, you would not tolerate it. So why are you tolerating it? He's not talking about foreign nations here. And as Christians, one of the things we often do is when we think about the wicked people, those people, we think of those people out there, not us, different than us. That's not what Habakkuk said. He said, my own people are this way. God, why are you taking this from your own people? And God says, I'm not. One commentator today said, what Habakkuk learns is that the judgment of God does not indicate the absence of God. It indicates the presence of God in many situations. Now, that's a hard truth to get sometimes. But what God is telling Habakkuk is, I'm about to do something about the wickedness of my people. But what I'm about to do, you wouldn't expect because it's coming from the Babylonians. Now, we don't have time tonight to get into what Habakkuk says after that because he's not real excited about the Babylonians coming. Now, I think he's good with the fact God's going to do something. He just thinks the method God is going to use is not the right method. Aren't you glad we never fall into that? We never question the methods God used to bring us to himself or others to him. Well, Habakkuk's going to say, basically, God, I understand you're going to bring judgment, but (laughs) do you really think you need to use the Babylonians? And God's going to answer him and tell him what he thinks. So here's what I want you to do this week to think about. I want you to think about the areas of your life that you're not being honest with the Lord. Maybe it's something that's, that's heavy on your heart. Maybe it's something that you've kind of avoided. But where are you not being honest with the Lord? And my, I'm going to ask you sometime this week to take some time to get honest with Him. And then release that in faith to Him. I don't know what that will mean. But I know that the first step to any kind of 
renewal or revival in our lives is to be honest with him about who we are and what we think. So that's what I'm going to ask you to do this week, all right?